Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Today, we're going to meet Christine Granville. She was a spy, and this is her story. Maria Christina Janina Scarbeck. <laughs> okay, that's a name. It is. It name. is. She was born in Warsaw in 1908, the second child of Count Jerzy Scarbeck and Stefania Goldfeder. Christina grew up in a wealthy home due to her father's position as a successful banker. Although her surroundings were plush, her soul grew strong as steel. The plucky girl possessed great self-assuredness, patriotism, and fearlessness. Her father nicknamed her Vesper, which means Venus, the evening star. Venus also fit Christina because she was known for being beautiful. She once even entered the Miss Polonia beauty contest where she placed sixth. Although she was extremely persuasive and voraciously loyal, she was prepared to be cold and ruthless when necessary. Oh, that sounds like the perfect girlfriend, cold, ruthless, and beautiful. There you go. After leaving convent school, Christina could have easily become a society girl, living a life of leisure and ease. But her father's extravagant lifestyle took a toll on the family. And after his death, Christina was forced to work to support herself. That always sucks having to work to support yourself. Oh, right? it's you know I don't know I don't know how you people do it. <laughs> right. In order to make ends meet, she took a job above a Fiat garage, but ended up getting really ill from the rising car fumes. Yeah, generally when you're looking for an apartment, try not to get one that is going to have carbon monoxide coming up through your vents all the time. That's usually a good way to decide if that's, a, yeah, a good idea or not. Well, Christina was eventually diagnosed with severe lung scarring. Her first job may have been miserable, but in a weird turn of circumstances, it later ended up saving her life. The family doctor suggested that mountain air would improve her condition. I'm not exactly sure how mountain air would help scarring, but... I think it's what like, kind of like they used to do to people with tuberculosis. They would send them out to like the desert to real dry areas. I'm not okay, sure that that really had any impact on them, but... It was just the, the suggestion at the time, right? Well, because of that, she took to skiing, and the change of scenery did wonders for her health, and the hobby actually became a passion that would be a hallmark of her espionage work. At 18, she married a businessman, Carol Getlick, but it was short-lived and they divorced soon after. Her next husband was much more intense, and he introduced himself by confidently grabbing her waist as she hurtled down one of Zekapen's more dangerous slopes. That seems like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to grab someone right. around the waist. Yeah, I don't think that would work in today's society for sure. <laughs> but Well, she would be a, a me too, and both of them would have broken legs. Right. It would not be a good situation. Mm. Um, yeah. The me too would be that his legs were broken as well. <laughs> exactly. That would be. Right. Now, weirdly enough, this guy's name was Jersey, which was her father's name. 
was kind of weird. He was a dominating or worldly character. He was very physically imposing, moody, and short-tempered. Huh, that sounds like someone else I know. Hmm. Moody and short-tempered. And he Hmm. had lived as a gold prospector and a cowboy in the U.S. before becoming a Polish diplomat. Okay, did you just get a visual of someone walking in with like an attache case with cowboy boots on? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's who grabbed her by the waist as she was skiing. Yep. Not only was he those things, he was also a writer with a passion for Africa. Hmm. So he was eclectic. Yeah. Although he could be dark and difficult to live with, Christina found him irresistible. Well, those that are dark and difficult usually are. They married in November 1938 in Warsaw, and they left Europe for a new life in colonial Kenya. How do you just pack up your bags and move to Kenya? I'm not sure, but they did it. They did it. When Germany invaded Poland in 1939, the couple was in Ethiopia, but they were determined to defend their country. So they immediately left for London, where Christina began pulling whatever strings she could to help. She first looked up Frederick Voigt, a well-connected political journalist and BBC commentator who she had met several years earlier. And this led to several intelligence connections. First impressions of the beautiful and bold young lady were positive, and MI6 agents realized what an incredible asset that they had on their hands. I think they were considering other assets, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that. Well, Christine began officially working for the SO, the Special Operations Executive, which was a British World War II intelligence organization. A very important objective of the SOE at the time was to sabotage sabotage, sabotage Germany's war efforts. This included disseminating anti-Nazi propaganda across occupied Europe and utilizing agents in neutral countries to distribute it. Would you not think it would be pretty easy to come up with anti-Nazi propaganda? I was just thinking that. I was like, that shouldn't be very hard. (laughs) I'm not sure if it's really propaganda. Yeah, I mean, you just have to drop a leaflet that said Nazis. (laughs) Nazis fill in the blanks. Well, lines of communication between Hungary and Poland were badly needed as German propaganda controlled all the news, and that effectively cut off Poland from the outside world. Christina's first mission was to pose as a journalist based out of Budapest, and under this cover, she crossed Slovakia and skied all over the Polish border, where she would rely on her connections. Once a courier channel was established, she could begin to deliver propaganda material for the Polish networks to distribute and bring out whatever intelligence they had for London. Hungary was a neutral country, but its government had recently accepted Slovakian territory that was offered by the Nazis, and it was more likely to cooperate with Germany than with the Allies. So, I mean, that would mean that they weren't all that neutral. They just said they were. We're neutral, except we're going to be on your side. Using the cover name of Madame Marchand, that's impressive. I like it because it has alliteration. She quickly found a flat and immediately began making plans for the first trip to Poland. Stubbornly ignoring all advice, she left in February when temperatures had dropped and snow in the mountains was over 10 feet deep. Enlisting some of the help of old friends, Christina then set off to begin her real work, crossing the country by train, horse, or on foot, gathering information, 
and making new resistance contacts. You know, I think she's one of those people that has to do things the hard way. I was just thinking, how do you ski in 10 feet of snow? I don't know, but she did it. She's pretty amazing. After returning to Budapest, she submitted a long report to London and was then faced with an unexpected problem. Her partner had become infatuated with her, and after rebuffing his proposal of marriage, the man set out to make a very theatrical gesture. First, he jumped off the city's Elizabeth Bridge without realizing the water below was frozen. <laughs> so, so, hold on. Her partner was Wiley Coyote. <laughs> well, how would it gets you like better. to make this big gesture and just land? How did he survive it? Yeah, this was an unfortunate dude. So the next thing he did, he attempted to shoot himself. You know, he's like, I will shoot myself if you do not love me. But he lost his nerve at the last minute and he only ended up shooting his leg. (laughs) See, okay, again, we're we're calling this guy. We're kind of implying he was cowardly because he lost his nerve, but he still Mm -hmm. shot himself in the leg. Right. I mean, that takes a little bit of courage to shoot yourself in the leg. Well, I think that he like put the gun down and <laughs> it went off. I think it was an accident. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is he's an example of if it weren't for bad luck, yeah. I'd have no luck at all. Yeah. I'm just still picturing a guy doing a dive off the bridge. You're just like falling <laughs> and hitting the ice. Well, you can just imagine if we know of these two things, just imagine how this guy lived his life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was like, here, Christine, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well. Obviously, he was not an optimal partner to work with. It does not no. seem so. So thankfully, there were more stable contacts to be made. The most important being Andrzej Kowarski. I don't now, know if you could he, find less stable contacts, but yeah, go ahead. That, that's true. So Kowarski was a fellow Pole. He was also from land-owning stock, just like she was. I think that's a, a way of saying that he was wealthy. And he had joined the Polish Motorized Division in 1939. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. He had lost a leg in a shooting accident before the war. (laughs) But that wasn't stopping him from smuggling dozens of Polish soldiers and allied prisoners of war over the Hungarian border. Okay, but you know her first question (laughs) to him was, how did you lose that leg? (laughs) Tell me about how you lost that leg. (laughs) Because if he's like, well, there was this woman, she was like, no, I'm moving along. No, no, I will not do this. I will not do this with you. I will not do this again. Exactly. Yeah, right. I've seen this movie. (laughs) I have been here before. Kowarski and Christina actually ended up making a pretty formidable team. So I guess she decided that his leg situation was a a different (laughs) one. She wasn't all that into dancing. We haven't found out so Apparently not, right. After crossing the Polish border, the two were caught by Slovakian guards who threatened to hand them over to the Gestapo. Cool as a cucumber, Christina refused to disclose anything despite several hours of interrogation, and she eventually persuaded her captors to take the money she was carrying and let both of them go. Christina's quick thinking saved them, but they were now known to the Slovak police, making any future trips very, very dangerous. Christina and Kowarski you know what? were partners. Hold on. Mm-hmm. You know what gets me about that part too, though? What? They arrested her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Why didn't they just take the money anyway and keep her arrested? Apparently, Christina was quite, quite persuasive. Okay. Are you using air quotes on quite persuasive? I don't know. But no, I mean, that <laughs> went through my head. It was like, well, if you let us go, you can have all my money. It's like, we have you in handcuffs. We can take your money and just put you right. in jail. That that That's a good point. I think that perhaps she... Her powers of persuasion. You know, yes. I think she probably batted her eyes a little bit and stood a little straighter and smiled a lot. And, you know. Persu- she persuaded them to let them go based on what they already had. So she basically offered them nothing. In right. Return. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well... Christina and Kowarski were partners in their work, but they also became partners in life as they embarked on a romantic relationship. Yeah. Their love only seemed to strengthen their dedication to their work, but things did become difficult. Christina was running out of money. Communications with London were getting increasingly difficult and their work was becoming more dangerous every day. Kowarski hardly had time to sleep, but he steeled himself to drive thousands of kilometers in his trusty Opel saloon to smuggle Polish airmen, now desperately needed to replace pilots lost during the Battle of Britain into Yugoslavia. He had also become well known to the Hungarian police and their Gestapo counterparts who stepped up surveillance of his movements. You know, one time, just to fill a little gap in there. At one time, the Brits actually had more planes than they had pilots. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, they were they were desperate because they were they were fighting Germany all the time and losing so many planes. Yeah, see, this is why you're the history guy. I just tell the story. Well, Christina continued to push herself really hard as well, and after a fourth trip into Poland in mid-November, she became seriously ill with the flu. How did this not happen before? Because she was skiing in the worst weather. And you would think that she would have been sick a lot, but. Well, okay, Grandma, it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the weather. It has to do with whether you're exposed to the flu virus or not, so. Exposed or exposed? Exposed. (laughs) Okay. Well, despite their devotion to the cause and each other, they could not hope to carry on for much longer. And the inevitable police raid came in the early hours of January 24th, 1941. After several fruitless hours of grilling the team, the Gestapo were anxious to use more brutal methods of questioning. But Christina was able to bring the interrogation to a grinding halt. Biting her tongue very hard, she gave the impression that she was coughing up blood and was suffering from TB. That's brilliant. Because TB was so dangerous at the time, it would scare people. It's like being a leper. Right. People didn't want to be around you. They would ship you off. Exactly. Well, at a prison hospital, she underwent a chest x-ray. And the x-ray results horrified her doctor, who didn't know what she did, that her lungs were already very scarred. He concluded that she was seriously ill and then he arranged for her in Kowarski's release. Because they were like, we don't want any of that around us. Okay, you can go now. And right. keep your money. <laughs> Although still under surveillance, both of them were able to slip away and sneak into the British embassy to ask for help in leaving Hungary. They were issued new passports as well as British names to go with them. Christina became Christine Granville. And Kowarski decided on Andrew Kennedy. 
and both kept these names for the rest of their lives. Christine was hidden in the boot of the embassy's Chrysler as it crossed over the Yugoslav border. Then she joined Andrew in his battered car to continue their journey to Belgrade. You always think that spies have like cool vehicles. Yeah, they didn't have a Bond vehicle. They did not. Over the coming days, they had to endure horrendous driving conditions and suspicious border guards, but they eventually reached Istanbul in neutral Turkey, where the British consulate welcomed them. After leaving Turkey, Christine and Andrew endured a long and dusty excursion through Syria and Jerusalem to report to SOE's Cairo headquarters in May of 1941. They hadn't expected a hero's welcome, but they were mystified by the icy reception they received. There was a simple reason for it. The Polish government, which was in exile in London, had actually just ordered that all ties with amateur networks be severed, claiming that they'd been penetrated by German intelligence. I don't think you could call these people amateurs. Yeah, I don't think so either. This meant that SOE could not send either Christine or Andrew back to the Balkans, the Polish section officer, Peter Wilkinson, had the unenviable job of breaking the news. Having just arrived himself after a really difficult journey from Crete, Wilkinson was blunt to the point of rudeness, which is something he later regretted, and then took the precaution of putting them both under surveillance. Can you imagine? You've done all of these things, and then you're put under surveillance by the people you're working for? Yeah, that would be kind of, that would be disheartening, I guess, at, at best. Yeah. Well, Andrew found out about it, and Christine handed over microfilms she'd brought from Hungary as evidence of the importance of her sources. And this clearly showed the buildup of German forces in advance of the imminent invasion of Russia. But even that was ignored. So, having put their lives on the line for their country, they were now suspected of being Gestapo spies. Man, I would be mad. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Well, Christine was bored out of her mind in Cairo. She and Andrew were kept on the SOE payroll, but she soon found herself with very little to do. She turned down the offer to become a cipher clerk because it reminded her way too much of office work. But she did take a wireless operator course, thinking it might be a useful skill if another mission came her way. Meanwhile, Andrew parted company and became a parachute instructor for SOE recruits. <laughs> okay, hold on. Hold on. Didn't he have a wooden leg? He did. <laughs> yeah. He did. And despite his wooden leg, he actually insisted on jumping with every group. Don't you think that probably made the recruits feel a little nervous? It would make the recruits nervous, but could you imagine how he could stick the landing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you would do something like that and tell, like, not tell them how your leg oh, yeah. was lost and just be like, I'm going to go with you and... Yeah. While we're doing this, yeah, stare at my leg. Yeah, no, actually, <laughs> yeah. you know what I think I would do? I would take my leg off. I just take my <laughs> leg off and throw up my backpack and be like, come on, <laughs> let's go. You guys will be fine. <laughs> you know, Been there, done this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've done this a bunch of times. You, you'll be fine. Trust me. After completing her wireless training, Christine also got her parachute wings. Christine tried in vain to get her spy work back, but a vacancy did not arrive until D-Day. Christine spoke near perfect French, and having wireless skills made her an opportune candidate for new missions. She was briefed and given false identity papers in the name of Jacqueline Armand. Her codename 
would be Pauline. I'd want a better code name. Not sure why it wasn't Jacqueline. Right. I know. I would want something cool. I would be like, Pauline? Really? Yeah, I'd want Viper. She parachuted into the region in the early hours of July 7th. The landing left her a little bit bruised and battered, but she managed to meet up with her contact. A day later, Christine was off to the Italian border. Groups of Poles that had been reluctantly pressed into German service were garrisoned at the frontier posts overlooking the winding Alpine passes, and her job would be to persuade them to change sides and hand over their arms. So, again, they were dependent on Christine's skills of persuasion. So she had this group of guys, they switched sides? She apparently got them to switch sides a lot of times. Okay, okay. (laughs) Right, yeah. One day, she was stopped near the Italian border by two German soldiers. Told to put her hands in the air, she did so, kind of slowly, revealing a grenade under each arm <laughs> with the pins withdrawn. Oh, oh, yeah. How would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's really like, we can do this or we cannot do this. I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Really. Yeah. When she threatened to drop them, killing all three of the group- the German soldiers fled. I would think so. so I yeah. guess she did more than threaten. I guess she dropped them. <laughs> yeah, she was just like, here, here we go. She's like, bam. Yeah, here it is. Yep. One of her victories was the fort at Caudalar, a 2,000 foot high stronghold surrounded by dense forest. Although bloodied and bruised after a day's climb to reach the garrison, she somehow convinced 200 Poles to disable their mountain guns and desert their posts. See, she didn't do that with brownies. She didn't come <laughs> crawling up out of the woods with a cake or something like, hey, hey, hey right. guys. I mean, whatever she was doing was, she, well, she was quite, could you imagine if she was a person coming up to try to get you to get into Amway? I mean, there's no <laughs> way you would get away without buying that stuff. Right. Well, what's crazy, she was bloodied and bruised. I mean, so she wasn't even yeah, able but, to I mean, do that. Hey, guys. You'll, we'll have pictures up of her. She's, she's, she really is stunning. She and is. And even bloodied and bruised, if you're a pole that's been out in the cold for a long, long time and haven't seen a woman, she's going to be a 10. Right. right. Well, poles that haven't seen a woman do tend to get rather excited when they see one. Um. Really? She also prevented German advances by blowing up roads and bridges. So, such episodes soon gained Miss Pauline respect among her male counterparts, but the next thing she did made her a legend. After bringing over another Polish group, news arrived that three important agents had been arrested. With commanders reluctant to attempt a rescue, she immediately cycled 25 miles to the Gestapo headquarters. First of all, like, immediately cycled 25 miles. Yeah. I I don't, you're picturing that really fast, and I don't think it was all that fast. (laughs) Yeah. She declared herself a British agent and the niece of Field Marshal Montgomery. She warned that an Allied invasion from the South was imminent, and the likes of Schneck would be handed over to the mob unless they cooperated with her. Christine managed this despite the fact, get this, there were wanted posters right behind him with her face plastered on them. Seriously, how would you like to be sitting at a card table facing this woman? 
Right. <laughs> She's yes. like, mm, seven and three. I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> it was a desperate gamble, but it paid off. French and U.S. troops landed on the Riviera as predicted, and a hurried meeting was arranged. After three hours of negotiations, they accepted Christine's offer of two million francs and a guarantee of protection in return for the three prisoners' lives. The money was dropped by air, and the next day, the three prisoners were freed, just hours ahead of their scheduled execution. Shortly after this, the SOE missions became fewer and fewer. Although her missions were less, her romantic liaisons increased. Although she always stayed emotionally faithful to Andrew. Oh, that's something. (laughs) One of her conquests is rumored to be Ian Fleming, who she was said to have dated for a year, causing her to be the inspiration for Vesper Lind. Remember, Vesper was her father's childhood nickname for her. And Vesper is the double agent Bond girl in Casino Royale. Yeah. So Christine jokingly talked of the horrors of peace, and she loathed the idea of a mundane life void of adventure, camaraderie, and a sense of purpose that the war had given her. Returning to Cairo, she took a job at the Middle East headquarters, and after some discussion, the SOE agreed to continue paying her until December 1945, shortly before it was due to disband. Alone and with no job prospects on the horizon, she faced an uncertain future. Christine discovered that her mother had died in prison after being arrested by the Nazis. And with Poland under Russian occupation, she knew she couldn't return home. Now she was stateless, despite her incredible work. And the home office ignored her requests for naturalization. She actually did not end up becoming a British citizen until December of 1946. Some of her friends were worried about Christine's precarious situation, and they encouraged her to join Andrew, who was now in Germany. But despite the bond that they had that was really unbreakable, she never pursued the idea of marrying him. Sometimes her pride and independence seemed to sabotage sabotage any chance of finding financial security. She gave no reason for refusing to accept a house left to her in a friend's will, and she turned down the chance of a government post because it was offered in respect of her SOE career. Instead, she drifted through a string of menial jobs, including a switchboard operator and a Harrods shop assistant. But in 1947, her new British passport enabled her to escape the miseries of London again for Kenya, where she met an old friend from Cairo days. The sun and open spaces did her good, and it was in Nairobi that she received the George Medal and OBE. Even Africa had its ghosts, though, and Kenya sometimes reminded her of her pre-war life with Jersey. So she ended up going back to London. Determined to travel and break out of her rut there, Christine took a job as a stewardess on a New Zealand cruise liner in 1951, and she joined its maiden voyage from Southampton to Wellington. One of the staff rules demanded that she wear her wartime decoration, and this made Christine an object of curiosity, and it caused a lot of jealousy. But one crew member was willing to stand by her. A diminutive 43-year-old man, Dennis Muldowney, was a pathetic and lonely figure who had joined the Merchant Navy in 1948 after his wife had divorced him on the grounds of cruelty. 
Soon it became clear that Muldowney wanted to be at the center of Christine's life, whatever the cost. For someone who hated domestic chores, she would always stay in hotels to avoid housework and having to cook. I understand that. I get that. Christine must have found life on board tedious and depressing. As Muldowney's obsessiveness grew, she did her best to put some distance between them. But in 1952, he responded by taking a job as a porter at the Reform Club, which was just a short ride from her Kensington hotel. The night before Christine planned to finally join Andrew in Belgium, her stalker followed her through the front door and up to the landing. One of the hotel workers in the lounge heard Christine and Muldowney talking, and then there was a sudden scream. With no warning, Muldowney had suddenly produced a dagger and stabbed Christine in the chest. The staff immediately overpowered him, but she was dead just a few moments later. You know, he had to do that without warning because if this is he, not a happy story. It is not. But I mean, seriously, if, if he had given her any indication, she would have kicked his butt. Well, she'd I have mean, probably she did you know what? She wouldn't have had she would have dropped grenades on him. Right. I mean, he must have just really come off as very much a beta male for her to have not dropped her guard, yeah. Right. The medical report written before Muldowney's trial concluded that he had no signs of serious mental disturbance, and he actually ended up offering no defense at all. In a rambling and unrepentant final letter to his family, he elevated his relationship with Christine to that of Antony and Cleopatra and coldly asserted that she had asked for what she got. Hmm. I don't like this guy. Well... I mean, obviously, he had some serious mental disturbance if he's comparing them to Antony and Cleopatra. But, I mean, he sounds like he was just a very, very brutal person. He was hanged at Pentonville Prison in 1952. Good. Yes. Christine's burial was attended by 200 mourners, including Andrew. The incredible spy's grave is very unremarkable except for a small plaque bearing Andrew's name, which was laid after his death in 1988. He never married. Respecting his wishes, his ashes were laid at rest at the foot of her grave. Oh, that's very sweet. It is. Christine was an incredible real-life character with unbelievable fortitude and tenacity. You can find spy stories on all the main podcasting platforms. If you like the show, please take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook at Spy Stories Group. And you can follow us on Twitter at Spy Stories Pod. The life of Christine Granville reminds us, just as Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle. A good spy gets in there and fights. Until next week, keep fighting. Bye, everybody. Thank you.